Hello, and welcome to the inaugural edition of the Market Skim podcast. For those of you who don't know, Market Skim is a daily newsletter that, using our favorite buzzword, curates uh, compelling stories in business, marketing, culture, and anything that uh, yours truly feels uh, would interest someone working in the marketing uh, industry. It is not market as in financial market, although sometimes we touch upon that. Uh, so the weekly newsletter can be subscribed to at marketskim.com. And what you expect is a newsletter with a little bit of a uh, write-up, hopefully humorous, of the day's news and links to anywhere from five to nine articles um, that touch upon a wide array of topics. So um, it's a experiment in progress, let's say, as is this podcast. So um, on Friday, I will record this podcast and hopefully get it live to the public the same day. So um, if you decide that your job is all you care about and you want something to do on the weekend, you can listen to it. Of course, um, I will be talking about the analysis behind the news, so if you deign to wait till Monday to listen to it, it will still be relevant. Um, so for this uh, podcast, I will curate the curated by talking about five of the 60 or so stories that I talked about this week to, to go a little more in depth in them. Hopefully the podcast will be anywhere from 15 to 25 minutes and uh, not too short, not too long and, and worthwhile. So the first story to talk about is uh, unfortunately a, a really um, bad one uh, that um, was, I believe, broken by Adweek, but by now pretty much every marketing trade has written about it. Um, that the CEO of Campbell Ewald um, has been fired uh, by Interpublic uh, because a staffer sent an email in October uh, 2015 that was inviting staffers to take part in Ghetto Day. Uh, I probably don't need to read some of the contents of the, um, the email uh, for you to sort of visualize uh, what was said and the tone of it and and all of that. And so uh, the reason why the CEO was uh, allegedly, the CEO was fired, I think by this time in the day, it's clear that he was fired. Uh, the alleged reason why he was fired or the reason that's being uh, speculated is that the creative who sent the email was not disciplined, and um, when this email came to light recently, uh, that is outside of the, the agency, is when um, the response was that he was gonna, that he had taken care of it, but in fact, nothing was done to this creative. And so, I think it's, um, to me, it's, it's depressingly instructive uh, to not, obviously, the, the, foc the focal point is on this agency and the CEO and this culture, 
But to me, I feel like it's undoubtedly emblematic of a larger issue in the advertising world about um, the, the, the culture that would, A, um, lead any individual on, at any agency to think such an email would be something that they could send to all of the office, and B, that they wouldn't get disciplined for it, let alone not get fired um, or jeopardize their, their standing within the, uh, you know, the personnel in the agency. And of course, we do not have the all-seeing eye to know um, how people reacted but if everything we've read is, is to be, is considered true, it didn't raise to the level that he was disciplined, this creative was disciplined. And they don't name the creative, but I'm pretty sure um, it's, it's been referred to as in a he, uh, but I might be wrong uh, there. So the, the salient point um, uh, that was referenced in the Adweek article, and I'm, uh, I'm uh, quoting, uh, the following day sources told, it, so um, when, when it was brought to light, the, okay, sorry, let's, let's read the important points. While the agency has not stated the reason behind the firing, the move comes just days after Adweek's agency spy blog revealed that a white creative leader at the agency's San Antonio office had sent the email. So it's just recent that this came to light. The following day, sources told agency spy that the creative behind the email had been fired months after it had first been spotted and addressed by executives. So it's just this, this idea that, you know, if you're a, a white male at an agency um, that, you know, there's somewhat of impunity to, to say or take actions, destructive actions, um, and, and not get fired for it. You know, this is not the sort of thing that, you know, an agency should, that anyone at a company should do, um, you know. You shouldn't even be, it's not the sort of thing that any right-thinking person should be sending to friends, to anyone. But um, the point that, that, or the takeaway that I have from this is, you know, the, the idea of diversity at agencies, um, you know, there is a rational expectation that the more um, people of color and, and minorities and underrepresented um, people from unrepresented communities are in executive positions, the more that um, stuff like this, you know, not that this wouldn't happen, but it would be dealt with in a different way. But that doesn't negate the fact that even companies today that have a primary, primarily white leadership should just know that, that this is not anything that, that an agency should stand for. Um, so hopefully people start pivoting away from thinking, you know, addressing the individual agency and start um, discussing how 
this is more emblematic of a, a problem in the industry. Uh, so moving on to uh, two pieces of news that kind of deal with emerging technology that is making it easier for consumers to take control of, of what could be considered um, draconian is not the right word, could be considered um, heavy-handed techniques by corporations. One of which is a new service uh, called Trim, which enables you to enter your credit card information, uh, which might scare a lot of people off, but it can, uh, it can tell you which service providers have you on a recurring payment plan and in the mode of some of the startups, like I think Operator is one of them, Postmates, where you can effectively outsource things that you don't want to do to someone else. Uh, they will call up the provider and, and cancel your recurring payment. And uh, it's fascinating, A, that, that this can happen, that you can have a proxy cancel something for on behalf of you and given that that's such a strange thing they note uh, the New York Times notes in its article that there are certain companies that they're not yet working with that require um, more uh, uh, qualifications or more security questions to confirm that you are who you are uh, trim says that it doesn't collect it doesn't ask for your social security number uh, but you know this is the sort of thing and um, they gave the New York Times uh, the companies that had the highest uh, percent canceled of um, I guess so they have the total subscriptions found and um, then uh, what percentage of those people that are confronted with the fact that you have a subscription S trim to cancel. So the highest was Experian. I uh, found 176 subscriptions, 35.8% of the people that received that information asked to cancel. Um, some of the uh, far, far less uh, percentage cancellation, but just um, for purposes of volume, the, the highest of the, the companies that they supply, the highest number of subscriptions probably aren't um, that surprising. Uh, Netflix, Spotify, Hulu, uh, all of which I have subscriptions to and I, I'm well aware. Uh, that I'm paying them. I think it's it's more interesting for, I'm sure everyone listening has had an experience where they get dinged for an annual payment and they're, you know, you, you don't want that service anymore. So you say, crap, uh, I'm gonna remember when I have a free moment to uh, cancel it. And then lo and behold, another year goes by, you get dinged by it again. And it takes you about four years to to, to actually deal with it. So this is hoping to, uh, uh, to fix that for consumers, obviously for corporations, um, some of which, or pretty much every corporation gets at least a percentage of its revenues from 
people that don't use the service don't want the service. Um, you know, maybe it helps them get a better sense of how many people are actually want the service, but it's not helping their bottom line. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, the next item to talk about uh, companies or their proxies uh, or people fighting against companies and their proxies is this uh, emergence of ad blocking. So ad blocking is, is not a new thing. And for a while I was thinking, why is it suddenly at the fore? And I think it's just because technology has and, and mobile devices has made it and mobile apps rather has made it much easier for someone to enable an ad blocker um, and, and browser plugins you know a couple of years ago it was certainly more complicated and um, the, the depth of the um, complication is is uh, is not you know crystal clear to me because and I'm not saying this because I'm doing a marketing podcast. Uh, I've never really enabled any of them. And uh, mostly it's because, I guess, naivety about how much of my data is being uh, used. And also, you know, it, it's a, all of the previous um, services are a, is a, um, a cleaver versus a scalpel and you know, I consume a lot of media and I try as best I can to compensate the people creating it. So um, at the 2016 IAB annual leadership meeting, Randall Rothenberg, um, who is the president, I assume, uh, or, you know, the leader, uh, really went after ad blockers in a, a way that I think a lot of people sort of gave an eye roll at. Uh, let me find the choice paragraph. It's a long one. So you might think ad blocking is uh, a is something that people have done because you can't really you know you choose the content you want. Um, and some of those content providers have perhaps enabled uh, onerous data collection policies on its readers and you know you sort of make a Faustian bargain uh, you can either stop reading that site or you read it and you ad block or you know you get fed up that you visited a, a mattress website and then it follows you across the internet. There's a number of reasons why people enable ad blocking. And we, you know, right thinking people can say, it's kind of not, you know, a, a fair thing. You can argue that the industry has gotten way too pernicious in the data it collects, but at the end of the day, you know, the contract of all of this free content that you consume is that you are paying for it with eyeballs to ads and data. And if you just back out of that uh, Adam Smithian agreement that, you know, you are, you're not withholding, upholding your part of the bargain. And certainly there's a lot of people that enable ad blocking that are fine with that. 
Um, but, you know, the advertising industry is, is uh, a lot of people, some of which use ad blocking, some of which don't, but are sympathetic to the cause, are of the mind that this is the opportunity for the ad industry to, uh, to take stock of the situation and decide, you know, how do we can... Had we tipped the scale too far in one direction, how do we get back? How do we, you know, how do we balance it so that people stop using this? And, you know, you do see a lot of, a lot of individuals say that, you know, they're not against ads. Uh, it just become too much. So what was Rothenberg's uh, statement that caught my eye? Uh, the latest ad blocking company is a web browser startup called Brave. It was launched by former Mozilla CEO Brendan Eich, whose last major investment was in banning gay marriage in California. Uh, that's a very, very, very unfair characterization of what happened. Which what happened was he donated, um, and it's been a while. So one of the props in California that would have um, ruled on gay marriage or would have constituted um, what marriage entailed. And he donated money. And, you know, this is a subject for another podcast. Uh, he effectively lost his position at Mozilla for it. Um, and a lot of people at the company, you know, if you remember this, the company was Every day there was a new person writing a blog post or a tweet storm for, who was w working at the company uh, with their thoughts, um, you know, uh, LGBTQ allies that thought it was unfair, um, LGBTQ uh, allies that thought he had to go, people that on the opposite side of the spectrum that... Um, you know, thought that he was at, he was the head of you know, this opinion was probably much um, smaller, but at the head of a company that prided itself on inclusiveness, and that's the expectation that you would have to have if you um, made a political gesture like that. Um, so he donated, and I think it was some small amount of money to this prop um, against gay marriage. And whether, however you feel about that, me telling you what he did and the statement, it was launched by former Mozilla CEO, Brendan Ike, whose last major investment was in banning gay marriage in California. That seems a little unfair characterization of what happened. So um, back to Brave, this new web browser that he's, he has. His business model not only strips advertisements from publishers' pages, it replaced them with his own for-profit ads. Now, I, I, um, I concede I haven't tried Brave, so I can't fact-check that, that last sentence. That seems untenable if that's exactly what they're doing. Here's the paragraph that caught my eye. This is the true face of ad blocking. It is the rich and self-righteous who want to tell everyone else what they can and cannot read and watch and hear. Self-proclaimed libertarians whose liberty involves denying freedom to everyone else. 
Okay, so that is crazy. Um, now, it's true that there have been a number of ad blocking technologies that have sprung up that um, are for profit in that uh, they, they, you pay for the, uh, the app or um, the, uh, you know, the service and it blocks the ads for you. And that to me seems something there is wrong that, you know, publishers are giving you free content and displaying ads and you're paying someone else to not see those ads. The system is broken. What I, I have a problem with is the system is not broken because because of what he said. It's just like that's taking your eye off of the issue that a lot of people are not happy and people are giving them an option to opt out of the ad experience. And, you know, the ad industry needs to needs to have a more level-headed response than over-exaggerating what a person who has a browser has done. That completely ignores the dissatisfaction of the, the consumer community. So, I don't know. That's... That's my take on that. That probably went longer than, than it needed to. Uh, so the Super Bowl's coming up, and there was a lot uh, to the point that I thought I was maybe overdoing it. A lot of commentary on Super Bowl ads. So uh, this is, some people are thinking this is going to be Snapchat Super Bowl, uh, that there's a lot of advertisers that are signing on to do that. Still, uh, I don't know if it's oversubscribed or sold out the Super Bowl TV spots themselves, but it's still, uh, you know, there's still a lot of money to be made in, in the broadcaster selling TV rights, but Facebook's launched a, a content hub for the Super Bowl that some people say augurs uh, the, the company as a, a replacement for publishers. Uh, Twitter is trying to get involved. Google wants to be the destination for real-time information. So suffice to say, people are going to be active on their second screens, and there's really a bit of a scrum for the, the major social networks to own a share of that. Uh, haven't seen anything with uh, Tumblr yet on what they're trying to do or the waves they're trying to make, but um, they're part of a bigger issue with uh, Yahoo and what they're ultimately going to do. Um, drilling in on Twitter, um, you know, what, what else is new with them? Uh, pretty much everything, a lot of turnover. Uh, they do have a former Amex CMO, CMO who's joined to become the CMO there. Um, they're, they're looking at different ways to, uh, to shore up you just get a sense that there's they're not bringing in new people, which is probably a, a bigger problem, but there's stories being floated that they're reducing the ads being sent 
uh, shown to Uber users, to, to high profile and high followed users, uh, to as a, a future proofing way to make sure that people don't leave. You definitely, if you spend any time on Twitter, I have seen much more ads. So, um, you know, the, the demands of a, a publicly traded company to increase revenues, they're just, they're sort of looking at a, a needle thin um, circle of a Venn diagram of growth, revenue, and, and um, you know, Wall Street expectations. And uh, it's, it's just, it remains fascinating to me because of all the social networks out there, and granted, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I don't fit in as the average person, but it's to, to me, it's everything. It's the most infuriating. It's the biggest time waster. It's the most edifying. I laugh more at things I see on Twitter than anywhere else. I don't spend any time really on Facebook. Um, and, you know, maybe that's forever going to be it's it's Achilles heel that people that work in the media uh, are the ones that like it the most but it's uh, it, it's just it's crazy in a side of my side of the times for me that something a, a company that feels so vital to the flow of information it just is always in peril uh, but I, you know, there are, there are reasons behind that. Maybe it costs too much money. Um, you know, the, the model doesn't support ads like other ones do. I don't know. Uh, but I hope it survives. But then there are days where I'm like, what am I doing on Twitter? I hope it fails. I don't want to spend another second on Twitter. Uh, but until that day happens, you can follow Market Skin at Twitter. Uh, and you can follow me at Keith O'Brien. Uh, if you'd like. Uh, so that's all we have for this week. It's going to top out at 26 and a half minutes, which is not that bad. Hopefully you found this interesting. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll see you back next week. And please go to marketskim.com to uh, sign up for the newsletter. Okay. Thank you.